Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom! Next time you are in Israel, which for so many reasons I hope is going to be sooner than later for us all, be sure to catch an Israeli soccer game, or as they call it over there, football. And if at the end of the match the score is tied even, know that Israelis will not call it a tie or a draw or a split. The word they will use is... Teku. Like so many expressions in the modern Israeli lexicon, teku is a word that can trace its roots all the way back to the Talmud. But what makes teku different is that it is not just a word that means tie, but it's an acronym. Four Hebrew letters, taf, yud, kaf, and vav, for four Hebrew words. Tishbi, yataretz, kushiot, Ubayot. The Tishbite will resolve difficulties and problems. In order to explain the acronym and the words, I need to take a step back before moving forward. The Talmud, as you may know, is a foundational text of the Jewish people, a compendium of rabbinic dialogue spanning centuries. And while the Talmud is constituted by all sorts of literary genres, it is best known, rightfully so, as an anthology of rabbinic debate, the record of hundreds of rabbis over hundreds of years arguing over just about every topic, philosophical, theological, legal, practical, and otherwise. More often than not, the evidence, reasoning, or stature of one rabbi takes precedence over that of his counterpart. However, in some instances, 319 to be precise, the rabbis are faced with two equally balanced sides, an insoluble dispute, a debate to which the rabbis can only throw up their hands and declare teku, a debate that will not be resolved until the end of times, when the Tishbite, that is, Elijah the Tishbite, Eliyahu HaTishbi, will reveal the answer, teku, it's a tie. The Tishbite will resolve difficulties and problems. The question of course, then becomes why. Why Elijah? Why is a Tishbite the one to whom we kick the eschatological can of all our present-day debates? Well, we meet Elijah in the biblical book of Kings, a passion-filled prophet. Elijah fought the good fight, the fight of monotheism, opposing idolatry in the ninth-century northern kingdom of Israel, which was then ruled by the wicked Ahab and his Phoenician wife Jezebel. Unlike, well, pretty much everyone, Elijah never dies, but's taken into the heavens in a whirlwind, thus explaining his mysterious and peripatetic presence at Passover Seders, at Havdalahs, Brisses, and other finely catered Jewish occasions. Elijah is not just the most ubiquitous of all Jewish mystical figures, but he's also the longest lasting 
making his rounds until the very ends of time, the harbinger to the Messiah, him or herself. None of which, interesting as it is, answers the question with which we began. What's the connection between Elijah and dispute resolution? Full disclosure, you, know that I sh- you should know that I wrote my um, doctoral thesis on a theologian, Rabbi Louis Jacobs, who wrote an entire book on the word teku. My dissertation on Jacobs was entitled, you guessed it, teku. So while I could share with you Jacob's answer to my question, the answer I'm about to share with you, for better or for worse, right or wrong, is entirely my own, which will also, please God, connect back to the Torah reading. Of all the biblical stories concerning Elijah, perhaps the most famous is a scene when he flees for his life from wicked Ahab and Jezebel, journeying 40 days and 40 nights to take refuge in the cave of a mountain. God's voice calls him from out of the cave to stand on the mountain, at which point a great and mighty wind arrives, followed by the crashing of an earthquake, then the shattering of rocks, and finally a blast of fire. Elijah was the rarest of souls to experience God's revelation, and yet the text states that God was not in the wind, nor was God in the earthquake, nor for that matter God was not in the fire. God's revelation, as experienced by Elijah, was heard in the still, small voice. In Hebrew, the kol d'mama daka. It's not just that Elijah lived longer than others, or he was in possession of a revelation to which no one else was party. Rather, Elijah represents the possibility of a different kind of truth, one that doesn't come by way of dazzling pyrotechnics or thunderous explosives but just the opposite, a quiet, barely perceptible, altogether unassuming, still, small voice, a truth titrated over time, whose power is not found by way of top-down heavenly assertions, but rather like a butterfly that emerges from its cramped chrysalis, gently, humbly, and over time. Truth, as represented by Elijah, is neither singular nor sudden. It's modest, humble, and steady, able to hold its ground even as the world shakes around it. And what does this have to do with today's Torah reading? Put simply, the mountain. The mountain on which Elijah stands is Horev. Horev, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, is a mountain of God about which we read about three times in the Bible. The first time is when Moses stood before the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus. The third time, as I just described, is when Elijah hears that still small voice. But the second time, the most famous time, is this morning when the children of Israel stand at the base of the mountain to receive the Torah. This is a moment of divine revelation when God's will is shared and God's truth is revealed. Our Parsha describes the thunder, the lightning, the violent trembling as God's presence ascended on the mountain, a top-down model of truth-giving, if there ever was one, a model which, and this is the important part, is diametrically opposed to the model of Elijah on Horeb, the still small voice. In one paradigm, truth is revealed in a manner thunderous as it is singular. In the other, Truth is revealed quietly and humbling. Both are Horev. Both are models sanctioned by the tradition. 
both paradigms of how truth is found, asserted, held, and maintained. This morning, I want to talk to you about epistemic humility. I want to do so, first of all, because Rabbi Witkowski promised me a dollar for every time I use the phrase epistemic humility from this pulpit, which by my count, that's $2 so far. The word epistemic essentially means anything dealing with knowledge. Epistemic humility refers to the virtue of being humble in the manner in which our assertions to knowledge are made. Epistemic humility is neither a declaration of ignorance nor the ceding of truth to another. Epistemic humility isn't waving the white flag to relativism that all truth is somehow shaped by context so we'll never know anything. Epistemic humility is merely the virtue of knowing that one's claim on truth must always be made with modesty, given that human knowledge is necessarily incomplete. We never know the fullness of anything, so when we do assert something, there should always be something tentative about our proclamations of certainty. Epistemic humility is a still small voice of Elijah, the counterbalance to this morning's Torah reading. The belief that our assertions of truth may be even better served by coexisting with the truths of another, even when they contradict our own. Epistemic humility is a certain demeanor, a posture of being, that announces to the world that my right to be right does not preclude your right to be right too. And you know what? None of us will fully know until the end of days who is actually right, when the Tishbite resolves our outstanding debates. You know, it might strike some of you as odd and unexpected to come to synagogue to hear a rabbi preach about the importance of staying humble in making truth claims. This is, after all, a house of God, the place where many go to find certainty in uncertain times, to hear fundamental truths as mediated by scripture, prayer, and thundering sermons. In my mind, though, the point of religion, or at least good religion, is just the opposite, to teach us that as much as we may think we know, there is far more in this world that we do not know that religious integrity is not so much the assertion that we're in possession of a truth which ultimately belongs to God and God alone, but rather the earnest search for truth, the never-ending aspiration to know the divine will, which asymptote-like always exists just beyond our reach. As a teacher of mine once taught me, the word religion shares the same root, L-I-G, as in ligament, that which connects two things. Only in the case of religion, the connection is between humanity and the mysteries that remain ever elusive. To be religious is not to walk this earth with certainty. To be religious is to walk this earth filled with wonder, awe, and appreciation for that which we don't know, may never know, but nevertheless remain committed to know. And let me tell you, our world is in desperate need of more, not less, religious people. Ours is an age that does not lack for societal ills, ills exacerbated by a toxic culture of hyperpolarized division. Pick the issue, 
race, politics, environment, gender, immigration, mass, vaccination, and otherwise. The point isn't any one issue. The point is a pugilistic manner by which we seem to be approaching every issue. As individuals, as a nation, as citizens of the world, we have no epistemic humility. We've lost the ability to assert our views with a demeanor that allows for the possibility that our knowledge is incomplete, evolving and functioning in the company of views which may differ from our own. The signs of the malady of our age are evident for anyone to see. On one side of the political spectrum, uncomfortable truths are dismissed outright as fake and as false. Better it would seem to reject that which we don't want to hear by fabricating an alternate reality that scorns science, disdains facts, a post-truth world bludgeoned by that age-old tactic historically attributed to Goebbels, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth. Why enter the arena to debate ideas? Let's just shout down the other side with big lies and little lies through television, social media, through any megaphone capable of drowning out the opposing views. But the threat comes from the other side too. As Alana Redstone recently outlined in her latest piece in Tablet, ours is a world increasingly inhospitable to engaging worldviews different than our own. An uneasy uniformity of thought has become the norm in progressive circles, most sadly and most dangerously on the very university campuses that are meant to be the bastions for active engagement of ideas, speakers being disinvited, students are being self-censored, disinclined to give voice to unpopular opinions for fear of being shouted down, canceled, and in some cases subjected to the threat of physical violence. The tactics here are different than those of the other category, but the effects are the same. A narrowing of acceptable discourse, an ideologically homogenous echo chamber policed by the most recent orthodoxies of woke politics, who, though dressed in the cloth of progressive thought, in truth represent the most illiberal tendencies of all. With threats coming from all quarters, I do believe it is a time of obligation and opportunity for the religious community to remind the world the importance of epistemic humility. We need to remind people that truth is elusive, that an admission of doubt is a sign of virtue, not weakness, and that listening, not speaking, is our greatest tool of expression. What a powerful moment it is in our Torah reading when Moses, the greatest of all prophets, is visited by his father-in-law Jethro, who proposes a different model of leadership than Moses. And Moses, he listens to his father-in-law, he course corrects, and he moves on. We need to remind ourselves of all the times in our life when we thought we knew it all, and now we know that we didn't, and ask if there's any reason not to believe that someday soon we're gonna look back at the beliefs we hold today in exactly the same way. We need to remind ourselves and the world that the force of our convictions is strengthened, not weakened by way of engaging with views different than our own. Is not the best test of truth, wrote Oliver Wendell Holmes, the power of a thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, an outcome that's only possible if we build a society willing to house opposing views. 
In the classic rabbinic debates between Hillel and Shammai, the house of Hillel is remembered not because of what he said, but how he said it, always stating the opposing view before his own. The rabbis understood themselves as instruments towards approximating the will of God, their arguments, opportunities to come closer to truth. The rabbis understood the active and sometimes heated exchange of ideas not as a source of division, but just the opposite, as an opportunity to create a shared conversation and vision for the world as it ought to be. This is actually what it means to be in community, whether it's a synagogue, a nation, or a biological family, to be able to sit down together with people with whom we differ, whose truth may be other than our own, but whose humanity and whose right to truth is no different than our own. This is what it means to be religious, to have epistemic humility, to hear the still small voice of Elijah. The wounded divisions of our age bleed openly. Fellow citizens unable to countenance politics different than their own, students whose minds are closed to the possibility of engaging with different ideas, brothers and sisters, members of the same family, unwilling to imagine a side of the story different than the one they've told themselves all these years. We don't need to give up our truths in order to hear others. We just need to learn to hold them humbly enough so that we're able to listen to other truths deserving of an airing. When will the prophet Elijah arrive? No one knows for sure, but tradition teaches that it'll happen only when the hearts of parents are turned to children and the hearts of children to parents. In other words, when people soften their hearts and listen to the whispers of truth, the still small voices seeking to be heard, that is when Elijah's presence will be felt. And on that day, Teku, the Tishbite, will have arrived, and the Messiah will redeem us from our present sorrows. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah,